The guys on the 96 take were just talking about the NHL playoffs. You know how you have to put it into perspective? Okay, here. Pick one of these four teams. Columbus, Boston, the Islanders, or Carolina. One of them has to be in the Stanley Cup Finals. And now pick one of these four teams. Colorado, San Jose, Dallas, and St. Louis. One of those teams has to be in the Stanley Cup Finals. That's what it's come down to. Crazy, crazy year. Uh, Tough year for Zach Hyman. We're going to talk about that in just a moment because he is going to be out for about half of the next year. Not necessarily the next hockey season, but kind of six months counting from today. Torn ACL. Can you play through that? That's what we're going to ask. What injuries can you actually play through? Oh, it's playoff time. Here I go. I can play through anything. That's the attitude that people used to have. Bobby Bond scored a game-winning goal for the Maple Leafs on a broken leg. Everybody knows that story. It was a little different than it sounds. This was not a displaced fracture. Bobby Bond did not hop around the ice and then take a slap shot. But what injuries can you play through? We'll talk about that. What is a plastic tax going to do for Canadians? This is not a plastic tax in the physical sense. This is not something you can go and buy at the dollar store. Look, I bought a tax. Buck 25. Used to be a dollar. That's not what it is. This is very different, and we may have to pay it. Plus, we're going to look at a lot of plastic that apparently we've dumped on the Philippines. Hey, Canada, want to come get this stuff? We got adult diapers here. Can you pick this up? The Philippines is kind of ticked. I know they're not a world power, but still, what are we doing? Don't we talk all about, hey, we're going to be great. We're going to take care of the environment. We're going to lower our carbon emissions. Hey, have you picked up your trash from the Philippines yet? Oh, never mind that. That's not what we're focused on right now. And then in our second hour, as promised yesterday, we're going to focus in on refereeing. And we're going to look at refereeing from as many angles as we can. We're going to begin with something that actually came out in 2007 that proved racial bias among NBA referees. It was something that the NBA hated. Charles Barkley called it the stupidest, what was it, stupidest, stupid study he had ever seen. And then Commissioner David Stern spoke out against it. Well, this kind of went off in 2007, and the NBA has done a lot in the last few years to make their officiating as fair as possible. They've spent millions of dollars doing it. We'll outline some of that stuff, but we'll talk to the author of that 2007 study because... He and his colleagues went back in, and they checked again. The racial bias has disappeared. How weird is that? It's great. But how weird is that? We'll talk about that. We'll speak with a referee about what it's like to be one. I don't know how we still have sports, to tell you the truth. How are they even in existence? Who wants to be a ref? Why would you take 100% abuse in your job? Why would, it's 100% negative. Why would you do that? How do we still have referees to officiate sports? And then we'll talk with Ted Baker, who is the vice president of the Ontario Hockey League and deals a lot with officiating. And we'll look at how they decide on suspensions and what sorts of things they do consider and how they look at certain types of suspensions and how the OHL has dealt with fighting and all of the the head checks and things like that. So that's coming up in hour two of the program. Off the bat, though, 
Man, it's great to talk to this guy. Doug Stacy is the athletic trainer with the London Knights. This guy has gold medals like you wouldn't believe from his time with Hockey Canada. And he's one of the smartest guys that I know. And it's always good to talk to smart people. Doug Stacy, how are you? Come on, Stubbsy. That's a little bit buttering up, bud. No, no, no. I'm all, I, you know me. I'm honest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what it is, and that's what it is. We need to, to talk about some things like playing through injuries, which back in the day when you could say, oh, I just got my bell rung, and then the coach would send you right back out there. There are injuries you can play through, and there are injuries you cannot play through. Can we look at somebody like Zach Hyman? We don't know how long his ACL was torn. I don't know if that happened on what would have been his last shift. Can you even play with an ACL tear? You know, actually, you can, Stubbsy. Most people don't seem to realize. Uh, often in, in those type of injuries, you can divide them almost into thirds. You've got a third that can function quite well without an ACL, but may require a brace. You've got some that can function without a brace quite well, and then you've got those that can't function whatsoever, even if they do have a brace. Most people that we see, especially in clinic, have gotten to the point where they can't function um, because the knee just swells up like a balloon or, or just gives out on them. Um, but it, it, you have to take every single one individually. So I, I've, I've known CFL football players that have played with ACL-deficient knees as long as they keep working out and uh, they wear a brace. So what exactly does the ACL do then? Well, the ACL is a ligament inside the knee. It's, it's a, ACL stands for anterior cruciate ligament. So inside the knee, we have two cruciate ligaments, an anterior and a posterior. And what their job is is to prevent the lower bone from shifting forward on the other bone. So the ACL's job is to, pre- to prevent an anterior movement or a frontal movement of it. So if you planted quickly and you don't have that and you can't stabilize well, the bottom bone would shift forward and your, your knee it would essentially buckle. Okay. And if you have part of what you were talking about when you divide it into thirds, there would be some of those knees that, that would kind of buckle automatically? Exactly. Like it, whatever position they put in, especially if they, they plant, they rotate where they depend on that ligament to stabilize, they can't stabilize with their muscle. So immediately the leg shifts. And the, the body's quite smart. If it starts to shift, it'll literally shut off the muscle going, hey, protect me. And that's when you feel like you're going to fall down. But there are a number of people that have such high tune, especially in high in elite athletes. Their muscles are so finely tuned that they can stabilize themselves in different positions by their muscle, and they don't depend as much on the ligament. Okay. We're talking with Doug Stacy, athletic trainer with the London Knights. Uh, let's look at, at injuries themselves. How do you determine whether a player can play through an injury? There's that old coach line, well, are you injured or are you hurt? If you're hurt, you can play. If you're injured, you can't. What do you do these days to determine whether a player can play? Uh, honestly, Stubbsy, what you just said is so true. I, like, I, I, I modify it a bit easier. I just say hurt and harm. Is it, it, does it hurt, which is pain, or is it harmful? As it, is it truly something that's injured? And by dividing it into that, you can actually figure out whether or not you can do something. So my big, my big test when I look at any type of injury, pain is pain. Like everybody, I, you know, especially working in a physio clinic or working in a sport environment, everybody's got pain of some sort. And if we said, okay, you can't play because you've got pain, well, nobody would play. So what we do is I take it to the next level and say, okay, let's look, is it truly harmful or is it really a significant injury? And for that, I look at a number of factors. Number one, do they have full active range of motion of that joint? Do they have full strength of that joint? So do they have the ability to stabilize themselves or protect that joint? And most importantly, do they have function? 
So function is the ability, for example, with a need to, can you actually do a single leg squat on that knee? Could you do a push-up with that shoulder? Because function is going to indicate whether or not, A, they, they, they could play the sport, and B, would they have the ability to protect so that that injury or that, that thing that hurts doesn't get to something that's actually more significant? I guess as a final thing, let's go instead of neck down, let's go neck up and and let's look at the head because day after day we're still learning new things when it comes to concussion and there are still changes being made to concussion protocol. How do you deal with head injuries now? I mean, that one's a little bit different. My my favorite thing, and I've done this at the uh, See the Line talks, is I've done a talk called The First 48 and when it comes to the head, it's different than anything else. Like, it's not like a, uh, like when you sprain your ankle or you sprain your knee and you see this big swollen knee. Yep, I can see there's something going on there. I'm going to assess that. The problem with the head is that you have to look and, 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 and test it in different ways. You got to see how it's functioning, like a computer. If you drop a computer, what's the first thing you do? You turn it on and see, does it work? How fast is it? Has it slowed down? Is there smoke coming out of it? And that's your indicator that there's something wrong. Well, it's the same thing with a brain. Because you can't see it, you have to test it. And you have to see, is there smoke coming out of their ears? Do they have function? Have they slowed down? Does it cause them to to have other symptoms, like suddenly they can't, bright lights bug them, things like that? So often with a head injury, you're going to see changes over the short term. So especially the first 48 hours. And so you want to just be patient with them and monitor them to see if there's any changes and test them repeatedly in different ways. I've had kids that I, I, I've, you know, you see that you see the injury happen and you're like, Oh my God, that looked bad. We test them. There's nothing. We wait a couple hours. We test them again. Nothing. We wait 12 hours, test them. Nothing. 15 hours. Nothing. At that point, you have to go, okay, it wasn't as bad as it looked, but then there might be a kid that it's next to nothing, but they're showing symptoms, and then as you test them, they're getting worse and worse and worse. So that's why it's like you really need to sit back and observe and test as many ways as you can to to, to know that, okay, this looks good to return, this does not look good, this needs to sit out and rest and heal. And are there more and more tests coming out that help you to do that? Uh, there's there's many different tests that you can use, and, and we don't use any one specifically. Uh, we like to use a whole variety of tests so that you're looking at things from all different. I want physical tests. I want to actually look at heart rate. Heart rate is an autonomic function, so we're going to do tests with them and monitor what their heart rate does, which would be an indicator that something's going on with the body. We use neurocognitive testing, so essentially we're, we're, we're testing that computer, how well it runs programs, how well it can solve problems. Um, and then we're also looking at some simple things like balance, because balance is the body's ability for the brain to process all the signals it gets from a peripheral structure to say, can it hold me? And, and if balance gets thrown off in, in head injuries, because the brain is not processing all the information it's getting from another area. There, there are a lot. Like if you go on the Internet, you'd be like, oh, my God, there's a million tests. You have to find out what works for you to be able to answer all the essential questions as to whether an athlete can return safely. Doug, keep up the good work. Thank you for the expertise on this. Keep working on your Five Alive, buddy. All right. I, All right. I'll describe what Five Alive is right now, and uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get some more people into it. What do you think? Oh, I think so. It might be something new. All right. I like it. Doug, have a great day. Yeah, have a great day, Stubbsy. Take care. It's Doug Stacy, athletic trainer with the London Knights. He's been a part of Hockey Canada and a whole lot of gold, silver, and sometimes even bronze medals and works at the Fowler Kennedy Clinic as well. So on what you can play through, if you wonder what Five Alive is, 
I'll just describe it really fast. It's kind of that aerobic and weight training all at the same time where you grab a partner, and anybody can do this, grab a partner, one for five minutes does something like ride a stationary bike or run on a treadmill or use an elliptical, and you go for five minutes getting your cardio that way, while the other one goes through a series of five exercises. So there's 25 reps in each, and you want to pick one for your legs, you want to pick one for your arms, one for your chest, one for your shoulders, and one for your back. Okay, so you pick all of those things, and that's kind of all those body parts, and you do 25 reps of each, and you do all of that five times. So five times on whatever cardio machine and, and five times on the series of, of, uh, of weight exercises. So it could be, could be easily, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and then something for your shoulders, something for your legs, and something for your arms, whatever, whatever you want to do. You can use push-ups as arms. It's very flexible, and it'll take you about 45, 50 minutes to do it. You don't even see it go by, and at the end of it, you had a tremendous workout. We're going to take a break. Remember, if you're going to start something like that, consult a physician first. I think I, I do need to say that. Make sure you know your doctor knows. You, you don't just jump into five alive. You might want to jump into one alive or one kind of sitting. That's where you want to start. Let's move on to something that is fairly serious, something that was a scary story to hear, and that is an abduction issue in Norfolk County. But we'll find out what Norfolk County OPP are doing about it. That's next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Let's look at something that would sound as though it would fall into a category of common sense or there's no way that could ever happen to me. Because that's so far from the truth. The 980 CFPL newsroom got word earlier this week that a woman in Norfolk County, was abducted and then taken to an area and was physically assaulted. And police were contacted about this, and they have been looking into it. And now we want to get the latest on this particular story because it appears that the person who was responsible for the abduction may have been inside the vehicle already. Is is that True. Joining us right now, Norfolk County OPP Officer Ed Sanchuk. Constable Sanchuk, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Let's go back to earlier this week. How early was it this week? Well, what I can tell you is that on Monday, April 22nd, just shortly before 4 p.m. in the afternoon, the entire bunch of police Norfolk County attachment were contacted by a Port Dover resident reporting an abduction. It was determined after speaking with the victim that between 9.30 p.m. on Sunday, April 21st, and 12.11 uh, approximate time on Monday, April 22nd, a female of Norfolk County, an adult female, was operating a motor vehicle in the Port Dover area when she was abducted by a male that was hiding in the rear seat of the vehicle. Uh, the victim was then directed to drive to an area in Norfolk County and was physically assaulted, resulting in minor injuries. She was able to escape and and then contact the police later on in that in the day. Um, I can tell you that Norfolk County OPP Crime Unit is continuing to investigate this incident under the direction of Detective Staff Sergeant Mary Louise Kearns of the Ontario Ontario Police Criminal Investigations Branch. And we want to put a reminder to all members of the public to be aware of their personal safety at all times. 
to always check the front and rear seats of their vehicle before entering. In this case here, uh, we've got an indication that the, the vehicle is probably more likely locked. Uh, we we're still trying to determine that. And the other thing, too, is that this male is not known to the victim that we've been told so far. So we do have an investigative team right now, and we are following the evidence, and we're taking to where it leads us, and we leave no stone unturned. We are uh, speaking to the victim, and he's providing police with information. Wow. We're talking with Norfolk OPP Constable Ed Sanchuk. So the person was in this person's vehicle. The the person who, who did the abducting was in the vehicle somehow. The information that we received from the victim uh, was that, uh, that that she was uh, obviously surprised uh, from a male popping up from the rear seat of the vehicle. So we need to put a reminder to people about their safety. But more importantly, uh, in this case here, we're still trying to determine who this person is. We don't know who this male is. It doesn't appear that this male is known to the victim. However, so we want to put a reminder to everyone to be aware of your surroundings at all times and to report suspicious activity or suspicious individuals in your community to your local police service. And it's one of those things where you think, ah, I lock my vehicle, that's fine. And it sounds strange or maybe oversensitive to have to check out your back seat, but how much would you recommend in terms of making a habit of that? You know, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a daughter, I've got a wife, you know, grandparents, regardless of who's driving a car, Male or female, it doesn't matter. We want people to make sure they get into a habit of always checking the front and rear seats of their vehicle. I know it sounds strange. However, we don't want to cause panic in the community because we just don't know who this person is that was in the back of the car. But we want people to make sure that they always are putting their safety as a priority. And in this case here, making sure that you double-check that vehicle before you get into it at any given time. Constable Sanchuk, how would you classify something like this? Is this kind of a rare occurrence that you would see uh, this is very for me. I've, I've never reported on something of this nature before of, of, of what has gone on here. Um, so, you know, the, the victim in this case is obviously upset. She's traumatized. Um, and she is cooperating with the police, but we just need to get this information out to the public for everyone's safety. And I think with regards to the situation unfolding here, um, you know, we need to follow the evidence and take it to where it leads us. But more importantly, we need to find out exactly what happened here, why it happened, so this doesn't happen to somebody else in our community. Is anything being put together from an OPP perspective? You mentioned no stone unturned. Are you doing something uh, that that would put together, you know, anything to, to really address this particular issue or issues like it? Well, I can tell you that uh, we do have uh, quite a few resources engaged uh, throughout this investigation, and we do have our OPP crime unit, uh, several investigators, several detectives, under the uh, under the direction of Detective Staff Sergeant Mary Louise Kearns from our criminal investigation branch. So uh, we are leaving no stone unturned, and we hope we will get to the bottom of this very shortly. And I guess finally, how serious are abduction charges when it comes to laying charges? Well, definitely serious. In this case here, you know, this, this victim uh, has indicated the police that she was physically assaulted and she received minor injuries. So, you know, there, there's a darn of the charges here, depending on the circumstances, depending on how this investigation unfolds. It's too early to determine what charges would be laid if someone is uh, obviously arrested for this offense. But I can tell you that obviously the investigative team that is working on this uh, will lay the appropriate charges once and if this person's identified. Constable Sanchuk, thanks so much for the update. No worries. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon and be safe. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That is OPP Constable from Norfolk County, Ed Sanchuk. So, yeah, it's one of those things. Like, you live in a neighborhood and you think, I don't need to lock my door. What do you, look at our neighborhood. This is a great neighborhood. Look at these kids running down the street. There's a cat peeing in my flower bed. Ah, silly cat. That's what you start thinking about. And oh, I don't need to lock my door. And maybe you don't, you know? You leave your door unlocked 10,000 times and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden... One time you don't, and who knows? Or you lock your door, and then 
After 10,000 times of locking your door, somebody still breaks into your house. I mean, the people are out there. You don't want to say, ah, you know, got to make sure I, hang on, we can't leave. I got to make sure I check my car. People look at you and say, what do you, what do you mean, check your car? Yeah, I got to open up the back hatch. I got to make sure there's no one in there. You'll sound as though you're overreacting. But in this case, you know, a quick peek into that back seat and... Who knows? Maybe maybe the woman would have seen this individual. I don't know what that means for the individual. If they see that they are spotted, I mean, this this is this is a creepy one. So just be safe, as Constable Sanchuk says, and we'll make sure and bring you any added information as it becomes available. Want to pay a plastic tax? I'm not sure that I do. What would it be used for? Where would it come from? We're going to ask those questions and get some answers in about 10 minutes. First, news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It would be fun to own a plastic tax, wouldn't it? Probably not, actually. What would you do with it? You put it on a shelf. Somebody would come over and say, hey, what's that? That's my plastic tax. What do you do with it? What do you mean, what do I do with it? It's my plastic tax. That would be the conversation. We're going to find out more about a plastic tax in just a minute. And then I want to get into a story that you can actually check out now at 980cfpl.ca or at globalnews.ca. And it deals with garbage. I shouldn't laugh. That's not very nice. It's not very nice of me to laugh. Um, For six years now, there has been Canadian garbage sitting in the Philippines. Really? Really? And now the president of the Philippines has decided, look, enough. He has said he will declare war against Canada if the situation is not dealt with. He says he wants a boat and he wants someone from Canada to come and get this. Or he will put the garbage on the boat and he will take it here. And I love the line. He says, celebrate, because your garbage is coming home. Eat it if you want to. Really? (sighs) Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been in on this. He's been saying that the government is working on a solution, but there has been no no plan released or anything like that. That's got to be a whole lot of hooey. You know, you... You are the prime minister of a country that is capable of doing a lot of things. This is a great country. You can't figure out how to get some garbage from the Philippines and bring it back here and dispose of it? And you've had seven years? So, it's not all on Trudeau, I guess. Former Prime Minister Harper, what were you doing? Um, what What were any of you doing? You can't bill yourself as environmentally friendly... And then throw a whole lot of garbage at the Philippines and let it sit around for six years to the point that the the president of the Philippines says he will declare war and he's going to get a boat. This sounds like it's coming from something that was made up, doesn't it? There's no way this story sounds real. It's real. It's a real story. And I'm trying not to laugh. But can we figure this out? Can we help out the Philippines here? Seriously, Canada, this is not looking good. We're going to take a break. Up next, now, if the plastic and all of the the other stuff in the garbage 
comes back to Canada after a plastic tax has been imposed, who would pay the plastic tax? Who would do that? Are all of us going to have to pay a plastic tax? I wish I was joking about this too. I don't think it's a joke. Next up, we're going to find out all there is to know about a potential plastic tax in Canada. That's a nice thing on your shelf. What's that? Well, that's my plastic tax. It's not going to be like that. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. No one likes new taxes ever. We have a lot of taxes that we pay. Now, we always lose sight of the fact that some of that taxation leads to pretty decent life in this country. I don't know if we could take any of those tax dollars and clean up garbage in the Philippines. But what if somebody introduced a new plastic tax? Because what did we get recently? We got a new tax, carbon tax. What's that done? Well, we pay a little bit more at the pumps, but we apparently get refunded that money and, and the refunds could easily be more than what you actually pay out. That's been suggested. We'll wait for the math on that. What about a plastic tax? What would that do? Well, it would mean we'd have to pay more for what? For pens? Is there plastic in my chewing gum? How would this all work? Well, let's stop wondering and let's find out. Because joining us right now on London Live is a man who's been looking fairly closely at this, and that is Aaron Woodrick from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron, how are things? Hey, everyone. Great, Mike. How are you? Not too bad. Plastic tax. Uh, is, it, is it feasible to think this could be coming, or is it just a suggestion right now? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to overstep the line here. This is in a report that the government commissioned. They were looking for a study on plastics in this country, the industry, whether we recycle enough plastic, things like that. But the conclusion was that we don't recycle enough. Only nine percent of plastic in this country are recycled. But one of the policy proposals buried in this report uh, was that they should consider a plastics tax. Now, there's not a lot of details, but it sounds like the modeling is along the same lines as the carbon tax, which is put the tax on, increase the price, uh, that means people will use it less, that'll make it more attractive for people to recycle because, uh, you know, right now, if, if using new plastic is a lot cheaper and recycling is more expensive, if you make the new stuff more expensive too, then suddenly you make uh, the, the recycled stuff, you know, the price difference is a lot less, let's put it that way. So, you know, th there's no sign yet from the government. We'd love to have them say, nope, we're not doing that. But uh, we found this in this report and we think it's important people know that this is a, a live option that's on the table. When you mentioned it was in the report, how buried was this? Was this just one of those lines where you actually have to be reading everything in the report to see it? Well, I got to say, a lot of government reports, and I read more than I care to. Uh, they're long, they're boring. Um, you know, this this uh, report was actually released more than a week ago, and people talked about some of the recycling stats, but it was only discovered a couple of days ago. Another news outlet managed to find this, so we may have missed it altogether. Uh, if it weren't for some intrepid reporter. But uh, look, it's uh, we don't know where the government is on this. Uh, all we know is they've already implemented a carbon tax that uses the same logic. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to believe they might consider something like this as well, uh, since they've already done it uh, in one way. Do they indicate at all how it, how it could work, or is this just kind of one line? 
No, they, they explicitly say it would raise the cost of consumer goods. Again, it's the same principle as the carbon tax. If you raise the price of gas, people are going to drive less. That's the goal, right? And that's, this is a very unique thing for taxes, Mike. You know, a lot of the time we raise taxes because we want revenue because we're going to spend it on things that government provides us with, right? But carbon taxes are different. They're supposed to change your behavior. And so the point, the goal is actually higher prices. And for a plastics tax, the principle would essentially be the same. Gotcha. We're talking with Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, looking at what a plastic tax might be like and, you know, how how possible this is. People tend to see things like this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I want to speak out about this. Have you seen anybody putting anything forward so that Canadians can say, whoa, uh, not in favor? Well, look, we're certainly putting it out there. Again, this is all just in the report. Uh, I'd love to have the government say we're not doing this. That would be great news from for me, from our standpoint. Uh, but, you know, I think people need to be aware because this is the net and logical extension of things like the carbon tax. If we're going to start taking this policy approach where raising prices to get people to change behavior is the way to go, then it seems to me that everything's on the table and, and it seems like the, a plastic tax is, is one of those things. What do you think of an approach like that? Well, look, I, I think it's challenging, uh, you know, both, both uh, you know, politically and logically. If, if the argument is you have to drive the costs up of alternatives rather than drive down the costs, I think you're going to run into a lot of headwinds because people get frustrated. I mean, when, when people talk about switching away, for example, from gas cars to electric, uh, most of the reason people drive, uh, you know, cars that run on gas isn't because they hate the environment. It's because it, it's financially it makes a lot more sense. So when you drive up the cost of gas-powered vehicles by increasing the cost of gas, you're, you're, you're making electric vehicles look more appealing by comparison, but you're, it's still more expensive. And I think that's the problem you run into with situations where you try and remove a cheaper option by making it expensive. It squeezes people's budgets, and they, they understandably get upset. Would you be surprised to see the government move to a new tax, given that we are getting into that neighborhood of, hey, the election is coming, we got to make people happy? Well, I would hope they would recognize that they're getting increasing blowback on the carbon tax. You know, our group has been pushing against this for years, and I can tell you it's no exaggeration to say over the last couple of years, the tide has totally turned on this tax. Province after province, the more people learn about it, the less they like it. Uh, I think it would be uh, foolhardy for the government to do this from an electoral standpoint, and, and it's probably bad policy as well. Aaron Woodrick joining us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Just before we close out, when you do look at what's being said most recently about carbon tax, doesn't matter what province it's in, some of that blowback, what are you hearing? Well, I think a lot of people are skeptical, and the reasons vary, right? Uh, one is that I think the, the, the Liberal government has overpromised. I mean, they're essentially telling people, we're going we're gonna to tax you, we're going to give you a rebate, but don't worry, you're going to all be better off. A lot of people don't understand that math. And the other thing I think, frankly, their reluctance to even call it a tax, they keep dodging that word and calling it a price and calling it other things, that, that makes you look evasive. If he, people know it's a tax. If you're not even willing to say and admit it's a tax, I think a lot of people start to wonder exactly what it is you're up to. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for keeping us up to date on things that could be in the future, like plastic taxes. Uh, Aaron, have a great day. Same to you, Mike. That is Aaron Woodrick. He is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So something that was found, this is not something that is coming, necessarily. This was found in a report, and let's face it, you can throw all kinds of things into reports. Hey, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do this, maybe we should have chocolate cake every time we meet. Let's do that. Who would buy the chocolate cake? 
Bob, you buying the chocolate cake? Fantastic. You do that. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. But we also know that doesn't matter whether it's the Ontario government or the federal government. They need money. They need money. So what do we do about something like this? We wait and see. Uh, you wait for the government, as Aaron Woodrick pointed out a couple of times, you wait for them to admit, yeah, it's something we're looking at. Might be reluctant to do that, given that we have an election coming in the future. Uh, let's go to the phones quickly with Bob. Bob, plastic tax. You ready for this? No, oh, man, this is another pile of BS. I'll tell you what. I like, come on. Like, what, the, the, what, every piece of garbage floating up on the Philippines has got a Canadian uh, tag on it or something? Oh, you're talking Philippine garbage. Well, we've got a very angry president in the Philippines who wants yeah. Canada to come and get the stuff. Well, come on. Like, you know, hey, hey, and he's threatening with his war? Well, hey, hey, bro, come at me. You know, like, uh, this, is this a joke? Like, uh, honestly, who, who makes this stuff up? But, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to... We're going to take the garbage from, prove that it's ours. Matter of fact, maybe you should knock on the door of China. Matter of fact, they should put taxes on the companies that do the ridiculous, like, Costco packaging, right? Because everything's coming from China. Charge them. Make, make them be responsible for the for heat mounts. But it does garbage. look, you mentioned, hey, does everything have a Canadian stamp on it? Well, yeah. we're talking, you know. no, no, we're talking about 26 shipping containers and there is evidence that they came from Canada and that there is an international pact that Canada actually may be violating in this case. And so, I mean, this this could be all above board that we shipped a whole bunch of trash to the Philippines and they've been wanting us to get it back and we haven't done anything to do it yet. I don't know, Mike. It's just, the world's getting stupider and stupider every day I wake up. But, hey, here, quickly here, you know, I just want to touch quickly on uh, your first segment there about injuries. Uh, it reminded me of a, of, a, of a series. Back in 2013, Patrice Bergeron, he, he tore a rib cartilage in game four, I think. He broke a rib, uh, uh, broke a, a rib on his left side in game five. He, separated, he had a separated shoulder and a punctured lung in game six. He played through the whole series. When the series was done, he spent three days in a hospital. Yeah. Yeah, isn't like, that? That's, that's one of the amazing. wildest I'll play through it stories. And and we did hear earlier, there is a difference between pain and harm or hurt and harm, as Doug Stacy outlined it, where if you are not going to do any more harm to yourself, and obviously in Patrice Bergeron's case, the doctor said, look, can you play through this? Yeah, okay, you, you can. It's going to hurt a lot. And he was willing to do that. So he did. Yeah, it's it's still pretty crazy what what lengths athletes will go to. And as Doug Stacy pointed out, they're athletes. They crash and bang around. They all hurt. They all experience pain. But it's just what ones are actually going to do lasting damage. Yeah, if that's going to happen, you can't play. Bob, thanks for the call. Yeah. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Up next, do want to outline that tonight there is a vigil taking place that will honor the victims of the bombings in Sri Lanka. And I want to play you just a little bit of an interview we did yesterday with Kevin George from St. Aidan's Anglican Church who was able to talk about being part of similar events. And I want you to listen to his words, because I think they're pretty powerful. They're next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Coming up tonight at St. Aidan's Anglican Church, there is a vigil that's going to start at 6.30. And you can find St. Aidan's Anglican Church 
at 1246 Oxford Street West. So it's on Oxford, just west of Hyde Park. So up in the northwest corner of the city. And we had a chance to talk with Reverend Kevin George, and you've been hearing from him quite a bit today on 980 CFPL, whether it's a newscast. He joined Craig Needles earlier today. We had a chance to talk with him yesterday about this. And Reverend George has been a part of similar events and he talked about what can happen at events like this as a result. That, in fact, is, is a part of the motivation here as well, because what we have found uh, when we were after the Tree of Life shooting together at the uh, Jewish Community Center, uh, and we were in a hall that was filled beyond capacity and into uh, the car park, um, and uh, we had people of so many faith traditions, and there's even people of no faith tradition, but people from many different backgrounds together. When we were together at the mosque recently after the New Zealand shootings um, and uh, with our our Muslim sisters and brothers, uh, in all of these instances, when we've walked away from there, we leave with a renewed sense of hope of who we are. And I think that that's really an important part of this as well, because it's too easy to buy into the cynicism of uh, the world, uh, the darkness that we see uh, in, in our own faith context. I'd call it the Good Friday Moments. It becomes too easy to remain focused on on the cross uh, and to stay far away from it and uh, to to say, I I, I want no part of it, it's no hope, I can't do anything. Uh, But when we come together like that, we're reminded indeed of how we are, um, in our context, for Christians and Easter people, a resurrection people, we're people of hope, and, and the people, the Muslim people are people of hope, the Jewish people are people of hope. We, we, we come together like this, and when we do, we're reminded that every little bit of our goodness adds up to something incredibly large. Um, Desmond Tutu said we may not be able to do everything, but we can do our little bits, and all those little bits together add up to something incredibly wonderful. And when you're in a crowd of several hundred people, you know, together, of, of diverse background, speaking about justice and love and peace and healing and hope, then we're reminded that all of our little bits of good, all of it, adds up to something wonderful and something good. And that's what the world needs, and we need it. We need to be reminded because it's too easy to buy into the cynicism and the darkness. And we want, in the London community, to declare that that's not who we are. Uh-huh. Those are powerful words. Reverend Kevin George, he's going to be hosting tonight again at St. Aidan's Anglican Church. That's at 1246 Oxford Street West, Oxford Street West, just west of Hyde Park Road. And it is open to all faiths. And as Reverend George pointed out, doesn't matter what faith you're in, one thing that religion does provide is that hope. Every religion is the same in that way. So it provides hope, and that's one of the things they'll be focusing in on tonight. So that happens starting at 6.30. Anyone from any faith or anyone from no faith is welcome to attend. Last time when they had something similar, and Reverend George was talking about the Tree of Life shootings, they had people who were outside the actual building where this was being held. So you may want to get there well before 6.30 to ensure that you do get a place inside, but there is an opportunity for people to stand outside as well. Coming up after news, we have something that I'm interested to to talk about. Um, Refereeing. We're going to Come at this from as many angles as we can. Refereeing and officiating in sports. I really stand shocked that sports still exist for one reason. How do we have enough referees to officiate them? 
Is there a more thankless job in sports? Is there a worse job in sports for the way that officials are treated? I don't think so. I really don't. I respect the choice of anyone who wants to be an official because, wow, that is a thankless job, especially at the minor level where you have to deal with idiot parents. Can't stand idiot parents. But we're going to come at refereeing from a number of different angles, including, right off, what happened in the NBA. Because they looked at bias and even more specifically racial bias in 2007. Wasn't the NBA doing it? We're going to talk with one of the co-authors of a study that did. And they found racial bias in NBA officiating. But the best part about this, they looked back a few years later after this story had come out. That bias had disappeared. We'll discuss it after news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. You suck, ref. How many times have you heard somebody say that? There's somebody who sits up behind the broadcast booth at night's games, and I bet once every three games, that same voice yells that out. Are there bad calls in sports? Yes. Yes, there are. Are the refs doing it intentionally to go against one team? No. No, they are not. They are not doing that. Refereeing is as thankless a job as I can think of. How many other jobs would you go to where you get actual verbal abuse? And in some rare cases, but it does happen, actual physical abuse. How many jobs can you think of? Well, you could be a boxer. No, that's not it. That's that's not what it, because you have the ability to hit back when you're a boxer, and you, and you walk into the ring knowing that you're going to be hit. Fortunately, there's not a lot of physical abuse in refereeing, but there is a lot of mental abuse, emotional abuse, and maybe worse. We are seeing things escalate. Why? Well, we see complaints about officiating. We have more forums that allow us to blow our tops about officiating. One of the first tweets that came up after the Leafs were eliminated on Tuesday night in a game in which they didn't play well. They made mistakes, a lot of them, and they wound up in the back of their net. That's why they lost. Somebody blamed the referees. Were you watching at all? Nazem Kadri came out today and put some of the blame on himself. Well, if the referees had called a penalty, Nazem Kadri wouldn't have had to do that. That's not how he feels. Refereeing had nothing to do with it. Boston didn't have a power play in Game 7. We need to relax on the officiating. It is subjective. Take yourself back to when you wrote an essay in school. You got a grade. And that grade was subjective. And sometimes you agreed with it completely. Other times you disagreed with it completely. Sometimes you were shocked to see that it was a B. Well, that was a steaming pile of trash that I handed in there. Look, I got a B. (laughs) But refereeing itself is something that is necessary. So why don't we take more time to appreciate it? Why don't we take more time to thank officials? Have you been to a minor pro sports game or a a minor league game, minor hockey, minor baseball? Have you heard what some of the parents yell out? Hey, enough. No more. 
You're teaching your kids that that's okay. Pretty soon we're not going to have officials if you keep that up. Idiot. So it's time to kind of look at this from a different perspective. And that is what we are going to do for the next hour. We're going to talk with someone who has been an official, who is in a Hall of Fame because they are an official. We're going to look at meeting out suspensions and things like that. But we want to begin with something that came out in 2007. It was a study. And you know what? It actually showed bias among referees. Oh, there, I told you. No, not like that. Not like you would think. Racial bias, believe it or not. But we're going to talk about the other half of that coin as well. Dr. Joe Price is an associate professor of economics at Brigham Young University, and he is the co-author of a couple of reports about racial discrimination among NBA referees. And we're lucky to have him now on London Live. Dr. Price, how is the day going for you? Oh, it's going really good. I know that, you know, usually professors aren't supposed to be the ones being tested, but can I test your memory to go back to 2007 to the study that you did in looking at at basically racial discrimination among referees in the NBA and, and some of your findings? This one took off at the time. Yeah, it did. It was, uh, it was, it was a great experience. It was neat to see what happened. So when you went in, how did you kind of go in looking for data? What were you looking at? Yeah, so we were looking at box score data, and I'd worked with this data as a student, and I noticed that every box score had the names of the three officials for the game. Uh, and then we knew which players got fouls called on, called on them, and we were able to get the race of the players, look for the race of the referees, and see if um, you know the race the race of the referees influences who they call fouls on. Wow. Now, did this come from a conversation saying, I wonder, and then it, it took off? Where was the genesis of this? It actually came from the book uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. He has a whole chapter in there about racial prejudice and these kind of snap decisions. Uh, and I started realizing that referees have a really tough job and they have to make decisions very quickly. Uh, they're very subjective decisions, and it's possible they could have been influenced by racial bias. Okay, so while we're still back in 2007, because we're going to fast forward the clock in just a little bit, but while we're back, what did you find in 2007 going through, I can't even imagine how much data you had? Yes, we we found that the racial mix of the referee crew influences the number of fouls called on white and black players. So if you're a white player, you'll get fewer fouls if there's more white referees on the court, and if you're a black player, you'll get fewer fouls if there's more black referees on the court. And when you looked at the numbers, how clear-cut was this? Well, it's a pretty small bias. It's about a 4% effect. But, um, you know, basketball is a very competitive sport, and so it actually, you know, can influence about 3% of the games. It also influences other aspects of the player's experience. Uh, Players end up playing fewer minutes. They become less aggressive. uh, And so your foul count can actually then start to influence everything about the way you play. Okay. We are talking right now with Dr. Joe Price, who is an associate professor of economics at Brigham Young University, about something that was put together back in 2007. And it gave the NBA a little bit of pause to look at this, because eventually this got put where? Well, it ended up on the front page of the New York Times, and then it got picked up by media all all over the world. Uh, in fact, I was in Chicago that day, and my waiter had heard about the study and had his own opinion of it. Um, but I think it started a conversation about whether we were right, if we were right, what did it mean? 
Uh, and actually, that I think that conversation was an important conversation to have. Absolutely. Can you enlighten us with any kinds of the conversation that you had at that time? What were people saying to you? What, what, were, they, what were they sending to you? Well, it was surprising how dismissive the MBA in general was. I think Charles Barkley said it was the stupidest, stupid study he'd ever seen. Uh, Kiki Vandeweghe said he, you know, he took statistics in college and he knew that you could basically say anything with statistics. But I think the most you know, forceful opposition came from David Stearns, who was on NPR the next day saying that this isn't right. Uh, we did our own study and we found something completely different. Okay. Now, when you start hearing either voices in the game like Charles Barkley or Kiki Vandeweghe or the commissioner of the NBA at that time himself, David Stern, coming out and talking about your study and dismissing it, what is that like? Well, uh, it's a little frustrating. I mean, imagine I'd said something about police officers or judges or teachers what you'd hope the response would be is, oh my goodness, we didn't realize this was happening. What can we do about it? Uh, and to have the MBA just be so adamant that it wasn't even there, and then to come out with their own study and not share the data with us, um, it, it, it just felt a little bit kind of the denial stage uh, rather than the, oh, I, I, we didn't know this, let's do something about it stage. And then we have seen some changes that have come about, and we'll get to those in a second. Did did the 2007 study and everything come after it, did it kind of quiet down after a while, did you find? Well, a little bit. I mean, the, the media, you know, played a huge role in, in just that short little period. Uh, the nice thing about it is that actually, you know, among economists, many people are aware of the study, and when we think about racial bias, it's one of the ways we think about the evidence for racial bias. Yeah, and I mean, this goes more wide-sweeping. You just mentioned police officers, and there's always that question mark. You look at any number of different areas in life, the question is always there. And if you can take a sample size here, uh, who knows what it's like in, in other parts of our lives. We're talking right now with Dr. Joe Price, who is an associate professor of economics at Brigham Young University. And we're talking about a report that goes all the way back to 2007, racial discrimination among NBA referees that was written by Dr. Price and Dr. Justin Wolfers from the University of Michigan. Now, in the time that has passed, we have seen a different commissioner come in, Adam Silver, and it's pretty easy to catalog all of the things that he has done to try and make officiating as fair as possible. They have this big command center in Secaucus, New Jersey, that they spent $15 million on. We see calls back and forth between that center and referees. When you saw this taking place, you guys went back in and did another study, right? Yeah, we, we were curious what would happen when people became aware of a racial bias that they had. Okay, so now at that point, obviously all the referees would have known, hey, this is, this is the data that was spilled out, these are the findings, and so you went back in in what year? So, we, uh, so remember this happened right there in the summer of 2007, so right before that next season, and so then we just basically went back in and looked at that very next season and the season after and the season after that. Uh, and the results are, are crazy striking. You, you see that the racial bias had been going up for a long period of time and then literally disappears uh, right in that very next season after the media attention. That is wild. Wait a minute. Okay, so let, let's look through that. If you were to go back even before the 2007 season, you were seeing an increase in racial bias, and then all of a sudden it gets presented, people hear about it, and it changes? 
totally disappears. And in fact, uh, one of the mechanisms it looks like is the referee is actually called fewer fouls. So if, if you're not a fan of fouls, then you could thank us for reducing the number of fouls in the NBA. You have had an impact. You look at those numbers. That's That's got to be something you take home at night and think about. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is actually it doesn't matter what the racial mix of the referee crew is anymore. Uh, so that that one piece of information actually was influencing the outcome of the game, and, and now it doesn't matter anymore. It just basically that as a factor of determining the game just disappeared. That's incredible. Well, Dr. Price, we really want to thank you for all of your time in helping us to look back over both studies. Any thoughts on rechecking things again in the near future? Well, I mean, I, I have started to look at the data a little bit again, and it, uh, you know, when you don't pay attention, it started, it looks like it started to creep up again. I, I, you know, with the publication of our new study with Justin Wolfers and Devin Pope, um, you know, maybe it'll reignite some of that attention and it'll go back down, but it does look like if you don't kind of keep tabs of things, these things will start to creep back in. Just like practicing anything. If if you stop practicing, you lose that skill, you lose that edge. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens now that, again, this is being brought to light by a new podcast and uh, and it's out there once more. Hey, we really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. You're welcome. That's Dr. Joe Price, Associate Professor of Economics at BYU and co-author of a report called Racial Discrimination Among NBA Referees. They went in, recrunched the numbers after they found that racial discrimination. It had disappeared, but as Dr. Price just pointed out, it's kind of back again. The podcast is against the rules, and it's done by Michael Lewis, who is the author of Moneyball, just in case you want to check that out. Up next, we're going to talk with a man who has officiated in a number of different sports and is in the Hall of Fame for officiating to talk about what being an official is like. That's next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you have ever yelled at a referee or an umpire, ever said a nasty thing, ever tweeted something, then this hour is hopefully for you because we're trying to illustrate the lengths that leagues will go to to ensure Proper officiating, fair officiating. We just talked about the NBA and the millions that they have spent on their command center that looks at only officiating. And that communication goes on between games and the center. And what it can mean when you see something that says, hey, there is a racial bias in the NBA. That was shown in a report in 2007. And then when they rechecked the numbers, it was gone because it had been alerted to the referees, to the officials. Adam Silver in the NBA has done an awful lot to change things. What's it like to be an official? That's a question that not many people can answer. And again, I still hold by the argument I brought up at the beginning of the hour. I don't know how we have sports. I don't know how they exist. Because I don't know why we still have officials who are willing to do what they do. Joining us right now is a Hall of Fame official and sports writer, Jim Crashman. Jim, you umpired for a long, long time. You've officiated in other sports. How many sports have you actually worked as an official? Uh, two. I did hockey for probably 20 years, but then because of working at the Free Press, I found that I was covering a Junior B game one night, and then the next night I was uh, on the ice refereeing the same teams. <laughs> so that kind of got a bit of a conflict. But uh, baseball is uh, still my number one uh, love. I uh, can't wait to get back on the field. 
this will be my, oh, God, I'm dating myself now, 57th year. I'll be uh, turning 69 next month, so I'm old, Michael. You're not old, and it's amazing that you're still doing it. It's amazing. Here's the more amazing part. You are still willing, and not only that, you are excited to get back out on the field. What is it that takes you back to what would seem like a 100% thankless job? Um, other than needing to get back out there and lose a little weight from the winter, I'm, I'm finding more and more now I'm, do, I'm working with younger officials, and kind of mentoring, well, not kind of, but mentoring them. And that's what I'm getting the most satisfaction out of now is if I can see like a, an 18 or a 19-year-old uh, umpire uh, that shows some potential, uh, start working in some Bantam and Midget games with them and uh, bring them along. Because, you know, a guy like me, I don't know how many more years I've held umpire. I'm, I'm just uh, just got a call from uh, Dieter Buchschweiger, the Knights doctor, and uh, I've got an appointment now, finally, for to have my left knee looked at. That's been uh, bothering me. Hopefully they can correct that, or that might limit uh, the games I do this summer. But uh, but as I say, working with the young officials and, and bringing them along and, and helping them, but helping them through uh, just not getting better as an on-field official, but handling basically the crap that they have to uh, go through, because I know that's what you're uh, you're talking about this hour is, 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 is the abuse that the officials uh, take. And uh, the, the thing with the young officials, it's not so much the physical abuse. You get physical happening at higher levels, but they go through so much verbal abuse, abuse out there. And you find in most sports, I think the attrition level or attrition average is about one-third of all new officials quit after one year uh, just because of the fact that the parents, uh, the coaches and the players, I, I think they expect, that that they're going to get that, but I think that probably has something to do with it as well. Coaches expect a young referee to be as good as a National Hockey League referee. Well, they're not. The players aren't NHL referees. They're kids. So they're kids players. They're kids referees. The kids make mistakes playing. They're going to make mistakes uh, ref- uh, as a, an official. The same in baseball. Same in uh, youth uh, youth baseball. So, but I try to uh, deal and uh, at our umpire clinics in baseball Ontario, we have game management. And a lot of that is how you deal with a coach and players, but also how you're dealing with the uh, the parents. And I still can't get over some of the stuff that I hear that parents yell at young young officials. Uh, is it the it, same? It, is it worse? Where would you where would you put that? I I I don't know. Just when you think it's getting better, then it just seems to go worse. It just seems to go, and I don't know whether it's trends or what it is. But but I was just doing a little bit of uh, research, and I saw. The Northern Ontario Hockey Association just this season had to bring in a verbal abuse rule. And if a parent threatens from the seats, yells at a referee, I'm going to meet you in the parking lot after, or or swears at them, the referee is to blow their whistle, point at the spectator, and then point to the lobby. There's no verbal communication, but it's automatic. The parents all know this, and they have to leave. If they don't leave, the referee goes to the timekeeper, puts two minutes on the clock, and if the parent hasn't left after the two minutes expires, that game is suspended to that point, then the league steps in. But the parent faces, if they're ejected, they face suspension, not coming back uh, for a certain amount of games. And but, but you figure, you know, haven't we got to this point, like it's 2019, but no, they still have to keep bringing in uh, rules, rules like that. And, and, and it's a shame, because as I say, uh, young amateur officials uh, in all sports, at all levels, uh, about one-third of them pack it in after in their first year just because of the, 
the verbal abuse that they're that they have to go through out there. Was there ever a time when you came home and said, "You know what? I'm done." Um. No, I. Well, God, that's how many years ago is that? I'm sure there were times when I was when I was uh, younger, and I even times when I was probably in my twenties and thirties where I heard some stuff coming out of the seats, and I just decided, you know what, that's it. But then I wake up the next day and say, you know what, I'm not going to let that one person. And we tell that to the young officials. Don't let that one person ruin something that you really enjoy doing because you wouldn't put yourself out there if you didn't enjoy if you didn't enjoy doing it. Sure, they get paid, and it's a great summer job. It beats flipping burgers and, and that sort of stuff. But, but if you didn't enjoy what you're doing, then you're not going to be out there. So think of that, I tell them. When you get up the next day, just kind of put that behind you uh, and, uh, and, and continue on. Don't let that one or two uh, adults ruin it, uh, ruin it for you. Well said. Well, Jim, thank you for sharing the experience and thank you for mentoring and, and keeping officials interested in this game because that's what we have to remember. Without officials, there is no game, and True. I don't want that day to come. And I'm getting old, and the day <laughs> will come when I do have to say, that's it. Uh, I, can't, I can't get out the home plate. As long as I can crawl, I guess, out the home plate, <laughs> I'll keep going out there. But thank you for doing this show today, too. I think it really... Uh, I think it just sheds a whole different light because I don't think a lot of parents think of what they're doing when they're yelling. Sure, they're not yelling at that person specifically. They're yelling at the striped uniform or the, or the blue shirt and the gray pants or that sort of thing. But they have to realize there is an actual young person in that uniform, and that they hear that stuff. Jim, thanks. Thanks, Michael. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. Jim Cressman, member of the London Sports Hall of Fame as an official and sports writer. Right now, I'm having to mentor kids based on what they are going to hear. That's something you have to let them know. This is what you are going to hear. This is what it's going to be like. This is how you deal with it. Should be worried about calling balls and strikes and penalties and how to determine if somebody is out at home plate. More to it than that. We'll continue to talk officiating in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Still thinking about what Jim Cressman was talking about with the Northern Minor Hockey League and the rule that they had. I don't mind that rule. Now, how far should something like that extend? Minor hockey, absolutely. If you're yelling at a referee, get out. Minor baseball, if you're yelling at an umpire, get out. No need for that. I think parents should stand up, walk over to somebody who's being, you know, that person. Yelling at the official. And as, as Jim Cressman pointed out, and rightly so, they're not yelling at the official. They're not doing the homework that some nutcase fans do these days on officials in the NBA and the NHL so that they can sit back and yell about that person's family. You realize NBA officials are walked to their vehicle every night. That is mandatory. You are not allowed to leave the arena by yourself. And when death threats come, and they do, especially around playoff time, you are sometimes given an escort into other places, whether it be to the airport, whether it be, you know, stay with you until you actually get on the plane. That's just reality. That's how nutty fans can get. And fandom in sports has only grown 
24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week coverage, that's only added to what is going on. But how far should that extend? Should you be allowed to yell at an official? Should you be allowed? It's that old argument, and it's one that we will cover off on Around the OHL, which is a podcast that you can hear every week. It is done by Curious Cast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your, your favorite podcasts. But we're going to talk about that this week, and we are actually going to invite Jake Jeffrey into the studio in a moment because we'll be joined by Ted Baker, who is the vice president of the Ontario Hockey League and is a past director of officiating, still deals with a lot of the discipline that is handled in the OHL because this is the latest direction that we're going to take this conversation about refereeing in. But if you want to send along an email, I would love to know. How far should you be able to go? If you have paid for your seat, should you be allowed to yell at officials? If you see, hey, that's a call I don't agree with, should you be allowed to do that? Incite the ref you suck chant, because that comes up. If you've paid for your seat, should you risk losing it? I'd love to know what you think. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Jake Jeffrey joins us in studio in a moment, and we'll talk with Ted Baker about meeting out suspensions about how you deal with things in the Ontario Hockey League, which is not the professional level. It's also not minor hockey. It is the best developmental league in the world by the numbers. So what do you do? And I want to look at things like how they've handled fighting and head checks and things like that because they've gone against the grain in the OHL. How hard was it to do that? What's happened since? We'll ask those questions. Ted Baker joins us in a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So we're looking at refereeing and officiating, period. Now it's time to move from the playing surface where we've been to the data that we've looked at, now to kind of the front office of it all. And we'll do this from the Ontario Hockey League's perspective talking about handing out things like suspensions, talking about how you deal with video, how officials are found and groomed, and what it means to be an official in a league that they just kind of pick out of a hat. You get to work this game. You get to work this game. You probably know the answer to that. Joining us is Ted Baker, who is the vice president of the Ontario Hockey League, and we welcome our good buddy Jake Jeffrey into the studio as well. As we talk with Ted about officiating, suspensions, and more. Ted, why don't we begin with how things work in the Ontario Hockey League when it comes to monitoring games and making necessary rulings? Well, um, during the entire regular season and into playoffs, uh, if something should occur during the course of a game where you have a penalty assessed, a five-minute major uh, match penalty, something like that, we get an automatic alert, uh, we being David Branch, the commissioner, and myself, as well as the referee-in-chief, uh, get an alert on our phones uh, that uh, something has happened. So we get the call right away as to, as to that. Um, we then have individuals at the office who immediately clip the incident that is in question or where it's been penalized, and that is then uploaded to a server which then uh, the commissioner and myself can access. Uh, we then have a call 
if it's, let's say, on a Friday night in London, we would have a call first thing Saturday morning to review uh, the incident that we're able to watch now uh, that has been uploaded. We then have a discussion as to the merits of the call, as to whether it was the right call. We then look at it from a discipline standpoint then, because every situation which is a five in a game, so checking for the for, checking from behind, checking to the head, cross-check, any of those situations which are five in games uh, are automatic reviews. They're not an automatic suspension, but an automatic review. So then we will review the, uh, the referee's report, which is immediately sent to us after the game as well. We'll look at the video, and then we determine the next course of action. It can be, no, we don't feel we felt the five in a game was, was sufficient, and that's it. We may feel that it was a bad call, so obviously there's no discipline. Or we may feel that we have to get further involved and and further the process. And that can take a couple of different avenues. It can, We would then uh, look for a report if the supervisor was there. We would look for then a written submission by the player to get his position as to what happened in the incident. And then based on all that information, we make a determination as to whether uh, what the discipline is. So that's one course of action. The other course is if there's no call on the play and a team is somewhat aggrieved by the fact that there wasn't a call, um, there's a couple things. We don't re-referee games, and that's maybe something that fans don't understand a lot of the times, and that's, that's not a slight. That's just the way it is. Uh, but we don't re-referee games to the point where, well, that was a spear behind the play, and that should be a suspension. Unless there's a serious injury to a player, we don't become involved with discipline unless there was a, call, uh, a, uh, a penalty called on the play. So if there should be a slew foot behind the play, and yes, it should have been a penalty. Yes, it should have been a match penalty. But we don't then become involved with discipline unless there was a serious injury on the play. Otherwise, you're going to get oodles of of tapes and emails regarding all sorts of things that could happen in, during the course of a game that just can't be seen by everybody. So um, those are some of the, the situations, Mike, that, uh, that we deal with. Um, then there's the situations where, um, you know, there's automatic suspensions. So we have automatic suspensions for certain things, whether it's verbal abuse of officials, whether it's second fight on the same stoppage of play, whether it's uh, slew footing, uh, kneeing match penalty, all match penalties. Those are all automatics as well. There's all sorts of factors, but that's that's one of the elements that you take into account as well. Player safety is obviously still important come the postseason. Uh, one thing I was curious about, uh, there's there's more cameras pointed at the OHL now than there's ever been, whether it's uh, through the broadcast or even in the, in the fans as well. I was thinking of that Robertson um, hit from behind there. There was a lot of uh, fan video that surfaced that, that, you know, that did kind of show a bit different angle of the play as well. Is that something that, you know, the, the, the league is aware of that they see as well? And does that get factored in the decision at all? Um. We look at every angle that is provided to us through our, you know, the teams have more angles sometimes just through their coach cams or things like that that may be more than a broadcast feed. Um, so we take into account any fact, any uh, camera angle that we're able to access. Um, we also have in some situations when you're dealing with, let's say, goaltenders, so it's in and around the crease, we have the overhead view, uh, which we didn't always have. So that is something that we can use to to look at certain things as well. But, geez, when when I started, you know, it was a matter of uh, we had VHS tapes that 
you know, guys would, would send in and you'd put them on. And sometimes we had no, we certainly didn't have the OHL action pack. We didn't have the, the, the scrutiny that we have now in terms of video. And so it was certainly challenging and you were dealing more with referee reports than you were with video. But now, you know, with virtually all of our games almost on, on television or, or captured in some way, shape or form, we're able to uh, have a better understanding of actually what's happened. Ted Baker with us, Vice President of the OHL. As we go through how suspensions are ruled on, some of the things in behind the scenes, Ted, we should talk about fighting because a lot of times leagues that feed into other leagues, developmental leagues, and the OHL and the CHL, they hold the crown as best developmental league in the world. You've got an opportunity to kind of mimic the rules of of the the highest level the ohl in terms of fighting kind of did its own thing a few years ago where it said okay maximum 10 fights per year and then that has been reduced to maximum three fights in a year or you do wind up being suspended and the team winds up being fined can you take us through what the aftermath has been in that do you have leagues that call you to say hey tell us what's going on or or do you look at a lot of data from what's happened in the last little while no we we certainly do um and as you as you correctly point out we had the 10 fight threshold back that was brought in prior to the 2000 and or 2012 season and then we brought in the three-game threshold. Uh, it was three season or three-fight threshold. But it was three seasons ago. Um, but certainly, uh, a byproduct of that has seen a significant reduction in in fighting. Um, I think the change since 2012 has been reduction of about 64 percent. So it's been significant in terms of the in terms of the numbers, sheer numbers. Um, but that's a credit as well to the style of play of our teams, to the to the type of player, to the expectation of uh, I would suggest uh, to fans. Um, and um, you're watching, you know, you're watching those whether it's OHL games or watching NHL games, and the the speed and skill and talent of the players uh, without any fighting happening. Uh, here in the playoffs, it's been uh, it's been remarkable. So um, that that's been one element to it. And yes, uh, whether it's our colleagues in the West and Quebec, we're all together in trying to do our best. What's in the best interest of the players? Uh, you have other leagues that that reach out and just ask for you know how we've positioned it. So um, you know, yes, there is dialogue among the leagues for sure. You mentioned as a developmental league. I mean, that's the case for both players and coaches and really referees as well. So earlier when you said you don't want to re-ref the game, that's got to be part of it, right? These guys are are, are learning as they go as well. I mean, there, there's plenty of experience there, but it's still something that, you know, every game is a bit more experienced for these refs. So you, you don't want to kind of overstep their boundaries, but there is that educational aspect of it as well, I imagine. Absolutely. You know, and, and I've always said, you know, back when I was uh, the referee-in-chief a number of years ago, uh, but now even with Conrad Hache, always said, you know what, you're going to have your fourth-line players, you're going to have your first-line players, and you always want to try to continue to develop your fourth-liners to become your, your go-to guys as your second-liner and first-liner. It's the same way with officials. You have an officiating team, you do have your fourth-liners, um, and you do have your first-liners, and you have to play the fourth-liners in order for them to gain the experience and to develop as, as players, and you need to do that as officials as well. 
So that's something. And then at the end of the day, teams have to recognize when players have maybe reached their, like the Peter principle, you know, you rise to the level of your incompetence and maybe the game passes you by and maybe you're not as fast as you need to be. You're not as, as quick. You don't have the, uh, the hockey sense or things like that that you need as a player to continue to progress. And it's the same way with officials. Uh, you make changes based on the ability of those officials who came in as fourth liners to be able to continue to progress. And if they don't, then you have to make changes. With all due respect to them, not everybody can officiate at this level. Not everybody can play at this level. And you have to recognize that as a, as a league. You recognize that as a team. And you make the necessary adjustments. It's the hardest, it's the hardest sport in the world to, to officiate with the speed and the quickness and, and the size and the enclosed space and, and everything that's going on. So uh, you have to make split-second decisions uh, with the speed of our game. So uh, we're trying to equip them with as much ammunition as possible uh, with, to make the correct decisions, uh, whether it's video, whether it's uh, video conference calls, whether it's video clips. Uh, that we send them, same way with teams, you're sending clips to players to try to improve. And if you don't improve, then then we'll have to make decisions to, to bring others and give them an opportunity. So that's that's part of the process that you go through when you're trying to develop the staff. And Ted, one last thing here before we let you go. Uh, so much of, of these punishments and suspensions is about player safety, but there's also some suspensions that really comes down to fan safety as well. I think of the, the puck over the glass after the whistle that comes with the automatic five games that I feel like we've talked about too often this season. And there's also the incidents where, you know, a player may have an, alt- an altercation or an interaction with a fan that uh, that isn't exactly great. We saw a couple incidents where, you know, a player flips off a fan or something like that. How important is it for the OHL to protect the, the fan experience? Absolutely. It's paramount. Um, we have to protect the player experience and the environment that the players are allowed to play in on a, on a game-to-game basis. We have to protect the, the fan experience. The last thing you want to do as a fan is come to a hockey game and as a result of inadvertent or otherwise a puck entering the crowd, uh, not during the play when you should be alert, but while you're you know, dipping down into your popcorn or your coffee and all of a sudden the puck comes up, which you didn't expect. So that's why, you know, the fan experience is paramount, and that's what our teams are, are, are continuing to uh, engage our fans to make sure that they have a positive experience at our games, uh, win or lose, because you're not, you're not going to win all the time. So uh, what does that mean, though? If, if teams aren't winning all the time, that doesn't mean you, have, you only have one champion at the end of the day. That doesn't mean you have 19 losers. Uh, it's the same way as, as fans, is that you're not going to win every game. So what are you doing uh, when you're winning? What are you doing when you're losing? And making sure that that experience is, first and foremost, it's safe and a safe environment, which it is within our rinks. Uh, and we've taken steps. Teams have taken the steps. But if there is something inadvertent that something happens, uh, then it's got to be taken care of. And certainly the players and our teams are aware of that. Ted, congratulations on the work that has been done over the years and uh, and on the direction that this league and, and the game itself is going. Really appreciate the time. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Ted Baker, he is the vice president of the Ontario Hockey League. Jake, thanks to you. we got to take a quick break. We'll come back to close out in just a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. This is fitting as we close out an hour talking about officiating in sports. 
Earlier this week, the Vegas Golden Knights were in a game against the San Jose Sharks. They had a 3-0 lead, and then a penalty that many feel should not have been a penalty was called a five-minute major. San Jose scored four times. Game ultimately went to overtime. The Sharks won. Vegas was knocked out of the playoffs. George McPhee is the GM of the Vegas Golden Knights and is a great human being. And he has come out and said that the NHL apologized to the Vegas Golden Knights. But here's his line. Quote, there will be no pity parties. Stuff happens in games. We're going to take the rearview mirror out and put a real good team on the ice next year. We're not going to carry around a big suitcase full of yesterdays. A lot of parents need to put that quote on their wall. Thank you to everybody who helped us out in this discussion. Thanks to Matt McKinnis. London Live, brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.